1: The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Tuesday, February 20th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Sure, the Russians screwed with our election, but imagine how much better they would be at it if they'd done it on meldonium. Yeah, the Russian curler busted for meldonium. I mean, just think, that Hillary impersonator who they hired to hang out in a cage, that guy was on meldonium, the increased blood flow, could have brought that from a B-minus to an A-plus Hillary in a cage impersonation. The U.S., I do take some pride in this, the U.S. is one medal ahead of the uh, Olympic athletes from Russia as we speak I'm patriotic. I'm disappointed. Like a lot of people are disappointed in the U.S.'s performance thus far in the Winter Olympics. Our twizzles lack sizzle. Our methods are wretched. I want to be good at sports. It says something about the United States. Maybe not the most important thing. But the Norwegians are so good, you got to admire them. And so while I get a little depressed, and just a little depressed, but there's, you know, 300 million of us, and maybe half have some interest in the Olympics, and most of those half are a little depressed about how it's going. It's like a slight bit of national depression. If you actually break it down to its component parts, it gets less sad. Like if I said, all right, the U.S., they're getting slaughtered in the Olympics. You're a patriot. What do you think? It's not so good. But if I said to you, all right, all right, it turns out the skiers who slosh back and forth on a ramp The American women who do this, when they get to the top of the ramp, they don't twist around as many times as the French women and the Canadian women who do this. Or at least the best French woman can twist around like half a time more than the best American women. But four years ago, the American women, they twisted around a little more than the French and Canadian women. Now, how's your national pride feel? You would say, that's what we're talking about? Because that's what happened. That's why our medal count is low. We're not as good at some activities that, if separated from the Olympics, would not seem that worth being good at. I mean, if you had a friend who was good at it, you would say, "Well, way to go. But it's not something really important like the International Memory Championship or having the best Scrabble player in the world or the best chess player. We should have more pride in that than the, uh, you know, slope-style participants. But slope-style is part of the overall Olympics. Some Olympic sports are clearly important. Hockey's important. Lots of people play hockey. It's good to be the best in the world at it the women, the american women might be the best in the world and they really are the best women hockey players we have in the olympics. However, on the men's side, I mean if you care to watch the 375th the best canadian hockey player, he might be on the canadian olympic team. The americans, yeah, we started about 250. Our top 250, they're in the NHL or a farm team. We're watching the rest of those guys. I used to make fun of the biathlon. I think Seinfeld had some biathlon jokes. Pre-X Games. Lots of jokes about the biathlon. Now I love the biathlon. Makes a lot of sense to me. Lactic buildup in the thighs. That's some athleticism. You're skiing on level ground. That's, That's a challenge. Should be in the Olympics. I would take pride in that. Skiing fast on a slope, what we just call skiing. Yes, of course. National pride should be based on that. Ski jumping. I like the Nordic combined because in ski jumping... The light guy is favored, or the light woman, tiny person who could fly. But what the cross-country skiing part gives is the guy with the enormous thigh is favored. So it's a good combo. It's totally cool. You can understand why Americans are not good at ski jumping. For years, Wide World of Sports, the number one sports show on the weekends every week, ski jumper just wrecks himself, just bites it time and time again. It's like if the opening sequence of The Tonight Show included, instead of Johnny cutely mugging with the orangutan, if he had his face partially ripped off by a ferret, I guarantee ferret ownership would plunge. And that's why ski jumping's not popular in the U.S. We did invent a pretty similar sport, less precise, more tricks. The sport that's debuting today, Big Air. That's the name of the sport. The sport is called Big Air. Look, Big Air is a fine nickname for a sport, You know, but the actual official name of an Olympic sport is like some people who name their son Chief or Dude or Big Guy. Have you met Clarissa? Oh, she has a new brother, Big Guy. The sliding sports, then you got the sliding sports. I think you need some of them, not all of them. I don't know exactly where they draw the line. The Olympics seem to have drawn it nowhere. Anyone who can vent to anything that slides gets to be in the Olympics. All right, guys sliding in a metal can. Okay, that'll be a sport. All right, two guys sliding in a metal can. All right, we'll call it a sport. Okay, four guys in a metal can. All right, fun. it's an Olympic sport. All right, all right. Set of the metal can, on a sled. Yeah, sure, it's a sport. On their back on a sled, fine. On their face on a sled, sure. Two guys on the same sled on their back. Oh my God, where does it end? I tell you, we missed missed the boat on this. We should have a sport that combines skeleton and luge, two-man or two-woman team. It's not until the last minute that they find out what their position will be. So they see, you know, a flash of a light, you're going forwards, you're going backwards, and they got to commit themselves that way, the very last minute. First guy belly flops, then the lady jumps on top of him. Oh no, it's the wrong way, it's the wrong configuration, points off. I would watch that. Fredericks, missed the signal. Then there's ice skating and ice dancing. I think it's the most legit sport in the Olympics. I mean, hockey's legit, especially women's hockey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bros will say, oh, the costumes or whatever. I've totally gotten into it. The jumps are amazing. The pairs, when they throw people around, totally amazing. Yes, it's not the best when sports have to rely on subjectivity, but there's no way around it, and this is definitely a sport. The problem is ice skating is currently constituted. It's just not what Americans are good at. It seems like it's what we're good at, but I watched the Olympics and everyone fell. Every one of these skaters, maybe the Shib Sibs didn't fall, but everyone's falling. Ripon didn't fall, but that's because he can't jump 17 times in the air like Chen. Everyone's falling, and so you say because you're watching this through the lens of you know the world ice skating community. Well, you fall, that's points off. No, we're Americans. What we do better than anyone is fall and then get up. And if you watched Lipinski and Weir, they were complimenting our recoveries on the fall. No one falls better and gets up than Americans in ice skating at the Olympics. And there should be extra points for that, not deductions. We need medals. On the show today, I spiel about the right and their take on gun control. And then I take on their take I got to say, I'm going to give you a little sneak, sneak peek. I win. I win the argument. I frame the argument. I present their side of the argument, but I wind up winning the argument. And now an argument in the form of a civic initiative, a universal basic income. It's an idea popular on the right, popular on the left. And in Stockton, California, it's actually being implemented. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay, the neighbor, and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we gvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures the Defender family Features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. There is a substance, a thing, a quantity that poor people, the experts will tell you, need. And that thing is money. There are many ways to get poor people money, or even moderate income people money. But among them is the crazy idea of, are you ready for this? Just giving it to them. It is called universal basic income and it's called other things in other places. And it has worked in Kenya. It has been tried pretty successfully in Namibia, Finland too. What about Stockton? Stockton, California, city of 300,000 hit very hard by the housing crisis, has a quarter of the population living in poverty. Well, now they're going to try it And we're going to find out details from the mayor of Stockton, the youngest mayor of a large city in the United States, Michael Tubbs. Hello, Mayor Tubbs. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. All right. Let's go through some of the uh, basics of this basic income. Where's the funding come from?
2: The funding comes from a group called the Economic Security Project, meaning it's philanthropically funded, which means no taxpayer dollars for this first demonstration.
1: Okay, first demonstration. How much money is in that first demonstration?
2: So right now, we've raised about $1.25 million. Mm-hmm. Um, and the plan is to match that, so we're hoping to get to $3 million.
1: And who will get this money?
2: We're aiming for at least 100 families. Mm-hmm. It'll be $500 a month for either 12 months or 18 months, depending on how much we're able to raise.
1: So would you rather have 100 families in Stockton helped to the tune of $500, $600 a month? I mean, that's got to help. Or would you rather have a really well-done study that's bulletproof that could be uh, applied to other municipalities in America? Well, what's interesting is that stock
2: is not alone in doing this. So the well-bulletproof um, study you mentioned is actually being done in Oakland right now by a group called Y Combinator. So the idea is that we want to help 100 families. but We also want to be able to tell stories of what ordinary people do with cash in ways that dispel myths
1: so so you don't have to be the the bulletproof peer-reviewed study that is, Oakland's going to do that. You need your study to be credible enough as research to qualify for a waiver and some other considerations.
2: Well, absolutely. So right now we just sent out a RFP for a research partner. And I've gotten responses for some of the best universities like Harvard, Berkeley, University of Chicago, et cetera. Um, yeah. So there will be a research component, but the idea is that We also want to have a qualitative part to this. Um, We want folks to be able to see and meet some of the recipients, really put a face to what the vast majority of Americans are facing in terms of economic insecurity.
1: Did you campaign on the idea at all of universal basic income?
2: I did not campaign on the idea of universal basic income, no.
1: Did you know about the concept? Was it something you'd considered before this money came about, the possibility was raised? Did you know about it?
2: I had read about it in college from Dr. King's Where Do You Go From Here, Chaos Our Community. Right. Um, where he talks about a federal work guarantee or basic income. Um, and I had heard that Thomas Paine had been calling for this since he wrote the agrarian revolution in the late 18th century. So it was always in my head, and I was always always wondering what happened to the idea, but I had no idea there was a contemporary conversation being held. When I found out there was people interested, and just knowing the strength and the resilience of the people in my city, I thought would be a good Test to be the first demonstration.
1: Did the people come to you? How how were you first introduced to the idea that it would be possible in your city? We were
2: at a Future of Work conference. That's good. And they brought up the idea. And there was about forty other cities who were also vying for the opportunity to receive the infusion of philanthropic capital. But we made a compelling case um, just by our demographics, about our community, about all the things we're doing, and how things in Stockton can scale in ways that things in other places are more well-resourced can't.
1: Explain what that part of the argument is. Why could they scale more in Stockton than somewhere else?
2: Well, well, Stockton has a demographic. So we're 20% Asian, 35% Hispanic, 35% white, and 10% African-American. So literally the whole world is here. Uh, Number two, our median income for a household is $46,000, which is actually below the national average and, and California's average, things in like places like San Francisco and L.A. aren't necessarily replicable in places like the Mid- Midwest, East, for example. But Stockton, because of our demographics, because of our ideological diversity, and because some of the opportunities and challenges poses itself as a viable option for scale because we don't have a whole bunch of just civic society in a philanthropic space, um, seeding projects and things of that sort, like you might get in other, um, more more well-resourced enclaves.
1: Right, right. So San Francisco has all this other uh, philanthropy money sloshing about. I would also think that since the cost of living is so much higher in those cities, the money might not go as far. And also it's, uh, you know, if you tried this out in L.A. or San Francisco, I don't know how big an impact five $600 would have. I was looking at home prices in Stockton. Could be the difference between homelessness and having a home. Could be the difference between renting and buying. Absolutely. So let me ask you this, and you might chafe at the question, but there's a reason that I'm going to ask it. As an African-American, is this program even more compelling to you, do you think?
2: Um, I don't think it's more compelling to me as an African-American. I think as someone who grew up in poverty and and has a community that has 25% of people in poverty, um, that's what makes it compelling. But I am proud of kind of the the heritage of this idea rooted in the civil rights movement and leaders like Dr. King and the Black Panther Party. That's That's right.
1: That's the reason I ask it because, well, the reason from my understanding that Dr. King and the Black Panthers is like point number two of their 10 bullet points embraced it is, in America, there's the idea that if you work hard, you'll get ahead. And that may be truer for some people than others. And also there's a long tradition of, well, sure, we want to lift up people and give them a hand up, but... Man, does the majority often chafe if there's ever a whiff of someone, especially from a minority community, misappropriating funds. So this is why, like, if you look at who is an adherent to universal basic income, it's this weird amalgam of kind of libertarians on one side. And then it has strong roots in the black community. So that's why I asked. Oh, absolutely. So. It's The people who support this often cite places like Kenya or Namibia, very, very poor places. Is that a good comparison or no, do you think?
2: I think it's a good comparison in terms of what human beings do with cash. Yeah. I'm excited about this because people always say, well, that's there. It won't work here. Um, supposed so to have Oakland running something, to have Stockton running something, and a couple other projects that may pop up over the next year or two makes me really excited to show that, no, it's not just – internationally where, where folks are struggling. But right here in the richest country in the world, um, there's folks who can't afford a $500 emergency, and we have a responsibility as a society to figure out how do we really respond to that.
1: All right. Michael Tubbs, mayor, Stockton, California. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
1: When 17 adults and students in Parkland, Florida, died after being shot from an AR-15-wielding disturbed teen, I, like I think every American, right or left, I was sad, and then I pretty quickly got mad. Mad at the AR-15-wielding disturbed teen for being a disturbed teen? Not really. It was for wielding the AR-15, like all those other AR-15-style weapons used in all those other mass killings. Now, this conclusion, oh, it's that weapon again that they're always using to kill dozens or more people. We should do something about that weapon. This is known as having an opinion supported by evidence and wondering why in a democracy the fact that mine is a popular opinion and a sensible opinion, yet is nothing more than an opinion, like it's not a law, wondering why this is not the case. So I shook my head. I shook my head pretty quickly. I didn't think too hard on this fact because I've thought on it with all the other mass shootings before. And I said, it's a shame that I can't get my country to act more like my city when it comes to protecting its citizens from gun violence. That makes sense to me. I don't know. It doesn't seem knee-jerk. doesn't seem insufficiently sympathetic to the people who have a different opinion than I do. And I'm pretty sure those people have the incorrect opinion and one that correlates with more deaths in mass gun slaughters. Now, here is Ben Shapiro. Which is one of the things I hate most about American politics. A tragedy occurs, uh, an act of evil happens, uh, and people who disagree with the political prescription that is offered by most activist side are then deemed to be uncaring or or people who are unfeeling. It's something really despicable. I'll talk about that. I listen to all my most beloved conservative podcasts. These are thinkers and arguers who I don't usually agree with. If I did, I'd be conservative, but I like to hear their opinions. I don't waste my time with Sean Hannity or people lying or people insulting my intelligence. I listen to people who I think uh, deal mostly in facts and try to present an opinion that I disagree with or even that I agree with. These podcasters uniformly use the fact that they are on the wrong side of the issue. That's my opinion. They use the fact that they are on the let's not have any AR-15 controls. They use this to decry the methods of people like me, people with opposing views who came to those opposing views via the accumulation of facts and evidence. Here's John Podhoritz on commentary. That's a podcast from Commentary Magazine, reacting to the horror of Parkland, which he acknowledged and then
3: segued to the horror of the upcoming debate. Uh, I, I, I find myself cringing at the, at the horrors of the debate that are about to unfold. Anybody else?
1: Both Ben and John, these are guys who thrill to the argument, usually. They even made a documentary about the milieu John Podhoretz grew up in. It was called Arguing the World. Ben Shapiro loves debating everything, doesn't love debating this issue. Says he hates it, says he hates the debate. Podhoretz said so, too. Why? Why is that? it that this issue is like taxes and legalized pot and more troops in Afghanistan, that this is the kind of issue where good arguments exist on both sides? I don't think so. Is it because with, say, like the issue of Israel, and I choose that specifically for these two arguers, with Israel, those guys believe in their bones that they have absolutely the right argument, and the majority of Americans happen to agree with them, so they love having that argument. Or is it the rare and thrilling issue where the public's against them, the polls show, but they actually have the facts on their side? Free trade. Free trade's a little like that. It's always intellectually exciting to have that kind of argument, I can tell you that. I don't think... That is why they hate the debate on the gun issue. I think it may be because they have the worst side of the debate on the gun issue. And so they hang on to a scrap of argumentation like Australian homicide rates have decreased at a slower rate than U.S. homicide rates after Australia did their big gun buyback. I didn't hear any conservative say, you know, there have been zero mass gun slaughters since they did the big buyback. I heard Ben Shapiro talk about the relative rates of decline in both countries, but I haven't listened to every day in the last few days. I skipped a day, so maybe he acknowledged the weakness of that argument. Of course, the country without so many dangerous guns has fewer killings. Of course. So what do you do? You sidestep that, of course, and you just argue, well, the proposed solution won't totally solve the problem. So if a proposed solution is to not have 30-round magazines but 10, is to not allow civilians to own M16-style rifles, you could say, yeah, but 90% of the problem won't be solved. Sure, another way of looking at that is only a few dozen to a couple hundred lives will be saved. No one would say that. Or maybe you look at this debate where you hold a mostly losing hand and you try to move it to more familiar terms. Rich Lowry did this. On the National Review Editor's podcast when he asked Dan McLaughlin this question.
0: Dan, do you have any thoughts on the, the perennial debate over the appropriateness of saying thoughts on, and prayers on Twitter, which seems to trigger so much of the left?
1: Uh, well, first of all, of course, we, we now live in an age when triggering the left is for some folks an end in itself. Yeah, that's the real trigger-related problem here. The easily offended leftists. So I've studied this issue. You've probably studied it, too. You read a lot about it. Every time it happens, you pay attention to the news. And there's always these cases of AR-15 wielding deranged people. You know, it might be a Bushmaster, as in the case of Sandy Hook, or a Sig Sauer, as in the case of Pulse, Sutherland Springs, Vegas. They all used variants on the AR-15. And I know that banning a certain type of weapon and the high-capacity magazines used to fuel the certain type of weapon— of the most shocking, scary, and disturbing slaughters. That's not going to solve all the gun problems in America, but it's not trying to. It's trying to solve or at least lessen the horror of mass gun slaughters. Mass gun slaughter is a problem. We can ameliorate that problem, but we don't. And the reason we don't is, well, to hear all the podcasts I was listening to, it's we overly blame the NRA. Without the NRA, there wouldn't be this problem. I don't know about that. I mean, here's what I know. The NRA's tentacles have certainly wrapped themselves around the wallets of Republican congressmen and senators. That's true. The NRA has also sprayed their ink into the eyes of gun owners. The gun owners have, to a large extent, welcomed that spraying. I don't think the NRA is the problem. I think the solution will definitely come at the expense of the NRA. In fact, I know that.
3: Or, as Podhoretz bemoans, People who have decided or decided 10 years ago, let's say, that uh, mass shootings were the result or are a direct consequence of the behavior of the National Rifle Association have a theory of everything, right? They have the theory, they have the unified field theory of this disease that has, you know, that is, that has overtaken our country, And they can therefore apply it instantly without any regret or sense of complexity because in their view... If the year was 1846
1: and I studied germs and Louis Pasteur and surgery, I would not need to pause and pray and hope and evaluate with nuance the question, should I wash my hands before surgery? Does that contribute to patient mortality? Let's say there was a large lobbying effort to get surgeons not to wash their hands, or at least to convince lawmakers not to pass a law requiring hand washing before surgery. There was a group that put out papers about all the reasons that patients die other than lack of hand washing. And and this group would probably point to stories where the surgeon did wash his hands and the patient still died. I wouldn't need time to reflect or to slow my 19th century role. Hand washing would not guarantee patients live, but it's better. It would ameliorate the problem, and I would advocate for it. I'd advocate for it forcefully. I'd use high-profile examples, maybe even ones that play on the emotions of regular people to rally others to my cause because it seems to me the overwhelming evidence points to the fact that it's the right policy. If we had this obvious danger and didn't do anything about it, I'd urge people to do something about it. And yeah, the next time someone died because the surgeon didn't wash his hands, I would default to the view that I just expressed. I would get the jump on those who say, let's wait and have a more nuanced view. On some issues, a more nuanced view just delays the right decision. Again, John All that, And it's
3: very useful when you know exactly when an event happens and you know exactly what it is that you think and you know exactly what to default to, um... You get a jump on everybody else who may not, who may have a more nuanced view. And there's
1: one more thing. Yesterday, the Federalist, which is. A news magazine like Commentary or Ben Shapiro or the National Review. I put it in a similar bucket. It's not far, far right. It's not the Daily Caller. It's not Fox News. It doesn't exist just to carry Trump's water. I happen not to read it as often as I listen to the podcast that I mentioned, but I dip in from time to time. And there was an article in The Federalist by David Marcus Stop putting traumatized teenagers on television, subhead. Our job as adults is to help and protect kids who survive school shootings, not ask them to lead us at their own peril. Wow. Ben Shapiro echoed this argument on his show. Because if we really cared for teens, what we would do is not hear from them after mass shootings. Not hear from them after we fail to pass laws to protect them. That's if we cared about teens. You know, there's this piece of modern technology that is very dangerous in the hands of teenagers. Teenagers who are perhaps an emotional extremist. The implement, of course, that I'm talking about is the microphone. It must be regulated. We can't just let anyone have access to one. A microphone, that is. I've heard this all over the right. The media should stop giving grieving teens who saw their classmates get shot. The media should stop giving them television time. Should stop allowing them to affect policy. Why? Why are they saying that? Why are these pro-NRA sites and commentators saying keep teens off the airwaves? I have a theory. It's because when teens are on the airwaves saying, don't shoot my fellow classmates, that argument works. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bien-Aimé, is more a crockett than a Tubbs man. He also came up with, uh, Our 1080s Aren't Hades, wanted to give him props for that. Mary Wilson, progenitor of Our Methods Are Wretched, also came up with, Our Nose Grabs Are So Drab, These Trays Don't Amaze our traversing needs nursing and then Mary and I both realize that we don't know what traversing is Steve Lichtai executive producer of Slate Podcast bursts with pride that the staff of The Gist can brainstorm insulting winter sports rhymed couplets The Gist I was waiting for the Russians to fail a drug test on their way to winning a sliding sport so I could have said their luge relies on subterfuge if only that had happened Oomperu duperu, Peru, and thanks for listening